What a wonderful group we have for our July Beer Talk. Awesome. We want to begin and end with gratitude every month, so we're going to start with staff of the Lake Saddle. They take such good care of us, and what an awesome meal. We always want to thank Golden.com for promoting our events and promoting every awesome thing that happens in Golden. If you haven't been to their website and you haven't signed up for their newsletters, I recommend it. If you care about Golden at all. I also want to thank Greg Reed and the Palmer Five. That's the band that plays here on some frequency and also provides our sound equipment. Yeah. So if you are attending one of our gatherings before they took mercy upon us and provided this sound equipment, it just wasn't pretty. <laughs> so we've all been rescued by Greg and his band. And we're going to get started this evening, of course, with our beer ambassador, who's going to come up and talk a little bit about the beers that we have tonight from Golden Sea Brewery, Francois Hobb, beer ambassador. No! Yeah. We'd like to be a beer wizard, but... I'm sorry? The wizard. The beer wizard. Oh, the beer wizard. Wizard! Well, you know, That's a promotion. We make the thumbs up. We can certainly uh, modify it, I think. We can just... Decide. We have that sort of power at Golden Beer Talk. Well, happy July 12th, and welcome to Golden Beer Talk. And yes, today the feature brewery is Golden City Brewery, and if you've been in Golden for a long time, you could have a vintage t-shirt like this one. And a number of people have commented on it. It is probably 20 years old, but last month I had probably a 30 or 35-year-old t-shirt from Wisconsin. Um, this week we got Fruit Gold, which is a cold beer, comes out of Columbus, first identified as a beer in 1918, according to the information I found. And we've got Evolution IPA, and they're both very nice beers. And the Evolution IPA, behind the name, is the fact that there's all these interesting hops, and uh, the IPA, the craft beer drinkers are somewhat fickle, and so their tastes keep changing. And so Evolution IPA will evolve to match the market. So it will be an ever-evolving IPA. They also, meanwhile, also frequently have other IPAs or double IPAs on tap there. Uh, and they have an August 18th beer class on IPAs. So maybe I'll see you there, because you like IPAs. All right, so uh, a little beer factoid. And, and I'm back to hops again, because hops are just so cool. And they're so important in IPAs. Um, as has been mentioned previously, the, the demand for hops is, is vastly uh, ratcheted up because of craft brews, where craft brews are typically taking about 10 times the amount of hops as the light American lagers from some of the mega brewers. And I've seen that so many times now that I'm taking it on faith that it's really 10 times more hops for craft brews. Um, there was a recent New Yorker article that was talking about advancing the signs of hops looking for new hops and looking for the holy grail and this is very good for colorado making a wedding between hops and hemp looking for the holy grail i'm not kidding you i couldn't make this up and i have this article here and it describes someone that maybe we should try to recruit as a speaker here he's paul matthews who they describe as the john james audubon of hops 
crossing the world looking for new and different hops and he tries to flavor profile them when he's kind of in this area of the wedding hops and hemp and he's going on an excursion to the sky islands of arizona and i first read that and i thought i don't know where these islands are in arizona where, where are they you know he's talking about the mountain hops and how there's unique ecosystems and so he's looking for some unique hop species that may or may not be there he recently came back from Georgia, you know, in the Caucasus, and he was talking about how in Georgia they use hops to help cure their bread. And so that sounds interesting. I don't know, I don't know what a hop cured bread would be like. And the Georgians also use hops as a folk medicine for reproductive health because they are the strong, they have the strongest plant-derived estrogen in hops. So I think hops are very interesting. This guy's advancing the science of it. If you want copies of this article, I'd be happy to make some for you. Just let me know. Um, and yeah, they're, they're talking about yeah, possibly making psychoactive hops. Sounds interesting. New York article. And we also still have these very fashionable golden beer pot mugs. At six dollars each, or a set of four for twenty bucks. Yeah. So just let us know. And with that, I'll turn it over to Matt. Where's Matt? With Matt and Gertie, who's going to introduce our speaker this month. Thanks, Matt. So we are so pleased to have Dr. Robert Hancock, who's a professor of biology from Metro Metropolitan State University here tonight. This is one of our best midsummer turnouts ever, so I think people are pretty excited to hear this talk. Uh, Dr. Hancock is originally from Scotts Club, Nebraska. He got his master's and PhD from uh, Ohio State University. He's been at Metro since 2008. Prior to that, he spent 15 years at the University of Cumberland in Ohio. Um, and he, one little tidbit I mentioned is uh, some of his duties involves planning and managing his wife's band. He plays the trumpet in his wife's band, his wife is here tonight. And the band is the Diane Jobe Band. Thank you very much for the invitation, Yoko. Matthew, Whitney, Bart, stand up. This is um, this is quite an honor. I, I was told that I'm the first Metro professor that would be at Urban Beer. So uh, I, th this is a, a really fun and interesting venue. If you did read it all, you might have just showed up. But if you read that little blip that was on the webpage, you might have seen filmmaker. Um, there's no projector. There's no screen. Uh, so, so this is just the word. Uh, there's no whiteboard or back in the day chalkboard. I'm just going to spin tales. I want to leave you with an impression of, of how I became the weird guy that I became. And uh, uh, yeah, and uh, so it started in Scottsville, Nebraska, which if you don't know it, that's just straight up the road. It's not quite due north, but it's really neat for me to have come back from living in Kentucky and Ohio and places like that. To, to come back and every night I can see my hometown on the weather report. <laughs> and uh, it's at that hometown where some really interesting things happen. I was an outdoor kid, it's a small town. So, you, you know, the kind of kids that at this time of year, my feet would have been like, like 
like leather sandals looks, because I was running on streets and dirt walkways and getting toughened up. And we would be out in cornfields. We did all sorts of unspeakable things. Uh, my best friend Dickie Drake and I, though, um, really, really got worried one time because there was something called a sleeping sickness in Scott's Well. And, you know, there's something very ominous about sleeping sickness. I mean, the technical term is encephalitis. Uh, it, it transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, St. Louis encephalitis was the flavor of the day. We still have that in, in the country, and it's been here forever. Um, I got really concerned about that, and I was a Boy Scout at the time, and I was working on a merit badge called Citizenship. Had to do something of good citizenship, so I wrote a letter complaining to our local congresswoman, Virginia Smith, and I said, you've got to do something about these mosquito problems. I didn't even know what mosquitoes, from a life history perspective, were at the time. So, so I did that, got the merit badge, and then I kind of forgot about mosquitoes for a long time. And I went to, to, I went to junior high and high school at Scotts Bluff, and um, I was a little bit behind all my friends. You know, they were having girlfriends and going on dates, and I was still broken voiced and kind of a little chubby and a few inches shorter. So I was pretty worried about. I, I had to come up with a plan. <laughs> so. My plan was that I'm going to do as many things as I can do and be as good at them as I can, and then I'll get the, I'll get the chicks. So, so I played trumpet, I practiced trumpet, I got to be in the first section, and I ran, I lifted weights as soon as, soon as they let me. And uh, you know, the long, the long tail, the long end of this is that I built this extraordinary physique. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I learned how to play the trumpet, and uh, those things actually carried me to a blues bar in Ohio uh, back in the 80s where I met this awesome singer, Diane, and the rest is history there. So, uh, really true, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so I, I ran, the other part of that though is, is, is that I, I got pretty fast, and I ran fast enough for a little college in Nebraska to write me a letter and say, hey, come to Hastings and you can run track. And I've learned since that that's the way that small colleges survive. They, they allow people to, 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 they say that this is what our tuition is, uh, and then they charge you much less um, because you get all these scholarships. So I had a track scholarship, which was really cool, and I went to Hastings College to do it. And then I went into a biology class. Now, one of the other athletic things that I have done was I became a scuba diver, and I watched Jacques Cousteau. Um, how many of you watched Jacques Cousteau? I see, look at this room, awesome. So, so I wanted to be on the Calypso, you know, the whole nine yards. Of course, all my scuba diving was in sand pits. Um, <laughs> I did here in Colorado to do that. And uh, so I went, to, I, went, I went and took my first biology class, and I got like a big monk shot because the great professor there took pictures of everybody, like who you were, where you were from, and what you wanted to be. And mine said Bob Hancock, Scottsdale, Nebraska, marine biologist. And that was fine. And uh, then I just realized that I want to be like those professors. Then I took an entomology class, 
which was the wild class of my life, entomology study of insects. And then I, well, said bye to the Calypso and figured out how to go to graduate school and become a professor that could be an entomologist. How about mosquitoes? Um, Hastings College, all of my best friends that were biology majors, they're not doctors. I don't even know if they're happy, but they were kind of like this, well, you ain't blank if you're a doctor. So it was, I had all this medical burden, this influence on me. So I just decided to go to graduate school and study mosquitoes, not even really knowing much about what a mosquito was still to that day, other than, of course, the expertise from my entomology class. So I had three choices. I had California Davis. I had um, University of Minnesota, and I had the Ohio State University. And the two people that were going to sponsor me at the other schools, you already know, I went to Ohio State. These, they wanted me to kill mosquitoes, which, don't get me wrong, it's a super important thing. And my applause is to Golden. Golden kills mosquitoes. <laughs> you guys do it your own way. And, uh, and then my students, and some of them are here, they kill mosquitoes uh, or um, up and down the range. So killing mosquitoes is important, but um, I didn't want to kill mosquitoes. I'm just fascinated with insects, with the beetle guy. Um, when I really got into this entomology game, like Darwin, Charles Darwin, like Alfred Russell Wallace, an evolution IPA. These are beer guys. So I went to visit the professor named Woody Foster at the Ohio State University. And this guy was not interested in killing mosquitoes. He was, he, he was interested in mosquito sex. He was interested in mosquito yeah. nectar feeding. <laughs> he was interested in, in, he had done research on another famous infamous blood sucker called Setsy Flies, where he was in, in England doing surgery, brain surgery on Setsy Flies. Pulling out endocrine organs and manipulating them in ways to find out the effects of hormones on their behavior. That's the stuff that, that, that really rocked my world. And he was such an awesome guy. He's one of those guys that when he laughs, his body kind of moves because it doesn't look like he can totally let it out. You know, I mean, there's laughers that can be vocal and laugh, and then there's like this. <laughs> so it's always a challenge for me to see if I can make him laugh like that. Uh, anyway, I, I would work with this guy for two degrees. So that's where we're going to leave it for the moment. We need to build a blood sucker, and uh, it's a pretty simple task. What I want to first do is just start with a tube because all animals that suck blood have complete digestive tracts. That means that there's a front end and a back end. One way tube, right? Mouth, bottom hole. That's how it goes. So, so um, that's, the mosquitoes have that. And they have it from the beginning. And mosquitoes, the, the children of mosquitoes are little worm-like aquatic things that live in water. They have breathing siphons at the back that attach to their strange respiratory system. So they have to actually be in contact. Unless it's a super crazy mosquito that penetrates plant roots or something like that. There are such. And then, and then they have at the front end of the tube this filtering device. And they generate this current. And uh, they have a pump. So the combination of filtering, combing, and pumping pulls all of this stuff from the water into these mosquitoes. And it's just a constant escalator of 
food in, digestion through the tube, poop out. Food, digest, poop. That's what we do too. Food, digest, poop. <laughs> so, so then they, they, they have what we call stadial growth. And everybody in the room is super familiar with the butterfly life cycle. You know, you start up with caterpillars, and then you end up with this pupa, and then you end up with butterflies, right? Um, they have to molt to grow in their larval stages. So a caterpillar doesn't just continuously grow like we do. They actually fill up an exoskeleton to the max, and then they have to, to molt. And they split and crawl out of it, and then they make a bigger copy of the exoskeleton for the next one. And this goes on and on, five times, four times, depending on what kind of insect, and some of them many more than that. And then they become this pupa thing, which you might be familiar with. And then finally, out of that, this grand transformation to have the adult animal. Animals that have that life cycle are amazing because they don't have to compete with their offspring for food. So if, if I'm a butterfly, I'm feeding on nectar as an adult, and my kids are munching on the greens. That's awesome, you know? Um, Bed bugs do feed on the same things throughout life because they have a different kind of insect life cycle. So they still have a tube, front, middle, back, and they have a process where every bed bug that goes through the stadial growth pattern, so grow, molt, grow, molt, grow, molt, grow, molt until adulthood, looks like the adult bed bug with the exception of having adult stuff, which the bed bugs are wing pads and gonads and sex structures. So, now let's get back to the mosquito because most of this will be about mosquitoes. Now we have an adult mosquito, but we have to figure out what this mosquito can do. Um, it, needs, it needs navigation equipment to find its blood host. It needs piercing and sucking equipment to successfully steal blood from a massive, enormous host that will feel it and not be happy about it in the process. It needs to have, um, it needs to have the transportation mechanism, wings, legs, etc., um, and it, it's pretty complicated. It's beautiful. It's extraordinary. Uh, they, they all look different. There's over 3,000 species of mosquitoes. Some of them don't look that different. As a matter of fact, two of my students here are solving that problem right now. What state were you working on today? Um, Wisconsin. Wisconsin mosquitoes collected by the Grand National Research Corporation, Neon, and uh, Kenyan. Kelsey are sitting at the microscope every day sorting mosquitoes that don't come necessarily from Colorado. And uh, of course, they've also, they both seen the biggest blood-sucking mosquito on the planet, which we have in the United States, not here. It's called, it's, well, the, the common name is a funny name. It's called the Golly And this mosquito, from the tip of its proboscis to the tip of its anus, is an inch long. Oh. And this isn't like the ones that everybody tells, oh, you should have seen the mosquito in my house, because we don't have that one. This guy is, is robust. It's a beast. <laughs> I've fed this mosquito several times intentionally on my wrist when they come to me. And their mouth, their fascicle, which I'll talk about in a minute, that's that tubular arrangement of things that they stick down into your capillaries to get blood, is so big, such a big diameter that you feel pressure. It's kind of like a tight acupuncture kind of thing. So anyway, back to the deal. So we're building, uh, we're building this, um, building this mosquito, and uh, what we're going to do with the mosquito is throw a curveball. 
So now we have the same business. We've got mouth to anus, but between there, we're going to install a valve and then a fork in the road, just anterior to, just in front of the valve, called a crop. And the crop is a fuel tank for nectar. So mosquitoes, and you all know, I hope, that only females feed on blood. And actually, not all species even do that. But most species of mosquitoes are blood suckers, and it's only the female. The males have nothing to do with blood. They only are nectar feeding sex machines. That's what male mosquitoes are. Not. Uh, so we have we have a mosquito uh, and we have so now we have this structure called the crop. The crop is full of nectar. Um, nectar goes there. Blood goes through the valve. It has the key to open the valve. The valve is ATP. That's the, they're the key. It's weird. So so blood goes into a big expandable gut. Um, nectar goes into the crop, and that is really my fundamental source of expertise is that I'm probably one of the world's authorities on the physiology and behavior of nectar feeding. Probably the only four of us. Most of us are gonna do learning the best I'm the best in the world at being rubber G handcuffs. So now we have a mosquito and uh, all of this special, uh, this special equipment. Let's now bust into some mosquito stories. So I go to Ohio State, and it's time to really fall in love with mosquitoes. As I mentioned, I really just said I wanted to study mosquitoes because of those influences. So Woody Foster has this blue tropical mosquito, and I'm talking iridescent blue. It looks, it's purple blue and deep and beautiful, and it's countershaded. Do you know how, do you know great fish, like a, a trout, um, have, have kind of a dark mossy mottled color on the top, and then the bottom is silvery? This mosquito's the same way. Now that, that, that says, wow, that's a mosquito that's active in the day, and true enough it is. So some mosquitoes are active in the day, some in the night, some in transitions. They're all different. So this is a daytime feeding behaving jungle mosquito, and it lives, as we found out, in the areas of the tropical rainforest when trees fall. That's when the sun can hit the, the, the bottom of the forest. So I wrote a small grant, successfully received funds to go to Panama. Woody tagged along. This was Noriega's Panama. So we're getting our provisions, and we've got, you know, machine guns, and there's like Ray-Ban guys all over the place. Um, we literally did get mugged, but there were three small guys against two slightly larger but still small guys. And we, fought, we fought in the barrio, we fought on the street, and, and they ran away, and we moved on. And then the next day, we were on, a, on, a, on like a Land Rover to get to the deep jungle. And there's a lake in Panama still there, man-made, called Lago Bayano. And there was an island in the middle. And the island had been untouched. It was primary tropical rainforest, never been touched by man in a big-time harvest, kind of saw-it-down way. That's where we went. And every day we would get up, and we would hike a trail. This was a, a, a field station. Hike a trail and find a clearing and sit in the clearing and wait casually talk to each other. We're talking eight to ten hours of this. 
And then finally, like the second day, we didn't even see any of the first day. At the corner of our eye, there's a, a kind of a, you know how spiders let themselves down from the ceiling? They kind of go beat, and then they stop a little bit, they come in, and you kind of look at them, and hopefully you're not freaked out, and you have spiders in your home, and you like it. But, um, like me, but we go to this thing, come down, and I look, and here's this delicate, extraordinary mosquito that's flying like this. So we're hoping that we can catch these guys and colonize them. And the standard way for people to do that is to offer yourselves to the mosquito, let them feed on you, put a little glass vial over it, transfer it to a little cage, take it back to that. This mosquito would not feed on me for anything. I would look, and the mosquito would back away, and then it would kind of come in. This, this little dance took minutes. That's a long time. I mean, the mosquitoes that feed on you tonight, they're coming in like, like darkness. <laughs> so, so this mosquito lands on me, and uh, doesn't land on me, and I can't do anything to it. I find after I get calm and patient, that the mosquito is entrained upon my nose. <laughs> it will only feed on your nose. During the trip, we eventually coaxed some to feed on nothings that were acting <laughs> We only caught 28 of these mosquitoes the entire time. So it's a very slow, passionate thing, but guess what? This was a treasure. These mosquitoes we would find are the first, are, 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 are members of a group of mosquitoes of a previously unknown to science courtship. They have the sexiest courtship that you can imagine. Uh, well, maybe not. <laughs> but I want you guys to visualize mosquitoes that are bright, counter-shaded, blue and silver. They have six legs, like all insects. The middle legs have these big ornaments on them, where scales are extended to form what we call paddles. And the male will actually patrol branches in the tree pole area, looking for females who hang upside down and this male will kind of do the same kind of dance by a female. Put his, they call it the tarsus, it's the tip of his leg, his little claws on her wing, pivot to face her, grab the branch, and then he starts to do a bunch of brilliant, beautiful, um, sensual, if you will. I don't want to get too anthropomorphic, but uh, 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 behaviors, and all these behaviors at the beginning are designed to get. Her genitalia, sorry, in a position <laughs> to which his genitalia can unite. So at the beginning, she's like this, he's down here. He does this, and then she does this, and if everything works, the green light is flashed, and he pumps forward, boom! And this is where it gets weird with insects. So you might be thinking about, you might be thinking about, you know, our ridiculous system, which is quite horrific. And, and here we have, here we have this extraordinarily complex set of appendages that have claws, hooks, kind of Velcro-like looking areas on them, and they lurch out and they grab a hold of the female, and at this point. He is tenuously attached to the female. No sperm, no nothing. 
because he has to do more. So he has to court her while he is coupled with her for the rest of this process to the point where he can actually initiate a further, more intense shift with a true full genital coupling, as we called it, and finally inseminate the female. Now, this is an important, 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 important decision for the female. Um, mosquitoes, with rare exceptions, female mosquitoes are truly monogamous for life. They take one insemination and they are shut down from receiving another male. They violently pick away subsequent suitors. They, like they have nectar tanks, have even more impressive sperm tanks. All the sperm that they got from the male is stored in little structures called spermatheces within the female. That's enough sperm to last any reasonable lifetime for a mosquito. Crazy, huh? <laughs> So that's what Panama did for me. What's a reasonable lifetime? A reasonable lifetime for a mosquito is this ridiculous, uh, this ridiculous um, kind of uh, exponential curve where within the first day, most of them are dead, and then the, the oldest of the mosquitoes, you know? This, did you guys hear the question, what's a reasonable mosquito life span? You don't know how important that is. Um, I'm, I'm going to say that, that not many, not if you go by average, it's just it's it's hours, not even days. It's hours by average. But of course, one full blood meal for mosquitoes can, for most of them, like the ones that are biting us around here that we're studying, produce 200 offspring. She can make 200 eggs and just flop them out, and that's a lot of offspring. But to be a vector of disease. With rare exception, a mosquito female must take an infective blood meal, survive usually a week to 10 days with that, if it's a virus, with that blood meal, or process it, and then take another blood meal where she is the vector. So just like in us, when we get a virus, the virus goes through the cycle, accommodates our cellular machinery, it multiplies, same thing happens in a mosquito. So she has to survive this period within which she will develop into a vector to be the vector. Now I know a lot about this because you might think that this is not a reason for me to love mosquitoes, but I got a call in 2007, living in Knoxville, Tennessee, working on renovating an old Victorian house. Bob, it's my sister calling, and she just had that voice that doesn't that you don't like. It's not her voice. Dave's not doing well, and we don't know what it is. Dave's my older brother, four years older. He, she said, you need, he lives in Phoenix, Arizona, you need to get to Phoenix. So I did, got a plane ticket, was there the next day. By that time, he was fully tricked. His whole body was being refrigerated like they do to fight extraordinarily skyrocketing fever. He had those little pumping things that are moving fluid through your body. It's totally, totally out. And six different kinds of specialists were running the mill. So we had the infectious disease, we had the HIV person, we had a 
which is, you know, they, 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 can't, they gotta do everything to, to, to rule it out, right? The CDC West Nile test takes a couple of days. He survived, he's alive today, but he had neuroinvasive West Nile disease. First in the state of Arizona for that year, 2007, um, it hit this part of his neck that controls the swallow mechanism, so that's gone. I just saw him on the 4th of July. Took him an hour to eat his steak, just to really chew that thing up. And then drink a lot, because he just flushes it down with posture. Because he doesn't have a swallow mechanism anymore. Thanks for last time. So it was really ironic, wasn't it? But here's a guy that goes off to study mosquitoes, and then all the relatives, are you sure it's not Bob? You know, and uh, that's, that's what happened. Uh, but, um, you know, um, one other quick story, and I will I'll terminate this because my timing's right where it's supposed to be, um, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. So, one tiny little story here. I was so lucky to go, I've, I've been with students and so, taking students all over the world. Matter of fact, I've uh, got one that just became a scuba diver and went with me to Marathon, Florida. Um, and then actually went to New Orleans last week to present it. A, a, a research for that. That's Kelsey, raise your hand. So, uh, I'd love to do that. That's one of the reasons I got into the gig. And I was on a trip to London, or not to London, to, to England. And it was one of those tour types of trips. We started in London, then we went north in Scotland, then we came back down. And I was so lucky that when we came back down, we stayed in the same, the same hotel. One of my students came to me with about, 90 red, swollen, itchy marks. So many of them were in lines. And I was so excited. <laughs> so, um, the first part of this story is that undoubtedly bed bugs. Bed bugs do not crawl on you in the middle of the night to suck your blood. They stay on their surface, which is usually your bedding, and then they dispatch their awesome tube, and they stick into you and suck your blood. But if you move, you're restless, they pull out, or if they don't get a good capillary, they move over. So a lot of the bed bug sign is rows of little itchy irritations. Now what's the itchy irritation? The bed bug is spinning into you, just like the mosquito does before it gets the blood flow. The saliva is extraordinarily important for them to receive and get the blood, to steal the blood, but in the same token, um, the saliva is, is enemy to you and your body builds an immune response to it. We're all born naive to these things called antigens, so we don't have responses to them, and uh, the, the mosquito people figured out that, um, well, not mosquito people, this is the immunologist, but there are five clear stages. The first one, you're naive at stage one. Then you're challenged by antigen. Stage two is the first thing that shows up, and it's called a DT, a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction. And that's the big itchy welt that shows up the next day that you can't keep your hands off of. And then you keep getting exposed to this antigen in this way, and you develop a worse scenario where you're type three, where you have an immediate hypersensitivity. That's that kind of whitish wheel and flare thing. There's a kind of a, 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 a firm whitish bump with a red rim. And then that goes away, and then the next morning, the DTH is still there. Um, shows back up. And that's stage three. You continue through life to be challenged. 
and you lose the delay that stage four. So you only have the immediate. And then if you continue to reach the pinnacle of medical entomology, you feel you set your back so your body doesn't care and it stops <laughs> waging battle against these, these spit molecules. So I'm stage five with the Zika mosquito because that's what I did my master's on. And I stuck my arms in the cage myself. That's what I did. And, uh, and I worked through it, you know? And I'm stage four with bed bugs, so I only have to deal with about 15 minutes of itchy little immediate hypersensitivity and then I'm gone. But the story back to England is that we stayed in the same hotel. She was stage, staying in the same room, assigned to the same room. She stayed in the same bed. So day one, front end of the trip, she's naive stage one, didn't have any bed bug bites. She did, they definitely fed on her, introduced her to the spit. And then we come back 10, 12, 15 days later, I can't remember how long the trip was, and then it was the morning of the first night that she had the raging, raging, you know, stage two delayed type hypersensitivity, 80 to 90 bites up her arm. From that became uh, a, a very nice film called The Bedbugs of London. <laughs> and uh, you can see clips of that. I think Yoko said that you can see them. So I think they're still there from a Westward article. I usually show my students um, these films. I haven't, I haven't put them out to the big world yet. Uh, uh, oh, well, you know. But you can catch some cool shots from that if you do your enough searching. Anyway. Uh, that's all I have to say about how I became as weird as I have become. And I love mosquitoes, and I am ready to field, uh, do my best to field any questions when you come back to me. Yeah. I do have a book online at some of these Westward articles uh, where Dr. Hancock is quoted about bed bugs. It is fascinating and super creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I really think you should look it up. And there are some clips of some of these really close up films
Because this is the bed bug question about traveling and avoiding bringing them back home. Um, here's what I do. Diane and I uh, stayed at, I'm, I'm just going to call them out because they were really nasty about it. It's the Days Inn in Moab. It was the last room available on a random trip, so we hadn't made plans. And I, I smelled the smell. So, oh. I, you know, I had colonies of bed bugs that I raised to make my film. And the old researchers described the odor of an established bed bug colony as kind of a, the, the two words, sweet putrid. And that, of course, is they poop in their garbage, and uh, that's where they live, cracks and crevices. Um, so that's the first important point. Bed bugs hate light. So they come out at night to bite, and they live in cracks and crevices. And they live together in cracks and crevices. They call these heartbridges. The way to avoid bringing them back is, is, is tied up with what bed bugs do when they've taken a full blood meal before they make it back to the heartbridge. And if a bed bug nestles into a crack or crevice in a backpack that's on the foot of the bed or a piece of luggage, then you can bring it back. I have a colleague uh, that I work with at Metropolitan University Denver who, who, um, whose son brought his backpack into their living room and he saw a bed bug crawling on the backpack. And, and he didn't know it was a bed bug, because, so of course the next day I'd have a Ziploc bag with a bed bug. I've received about 60 of those since 2008. <laughs> um, so here's what Diane and I do. Diane and I went into a buggy hotel, and it was a massive colony. It did not show signs of life. Um, one of the things you can do if you really are suspicious is take out a flashlight a powerful one, and because they hate light, you can flush them. That's what you'll get from some of the control companies that visit you, is a flashlight job. And uh, so we flushed it, it, it no, nothing came out, and I was pretty certain that they weren't there, but we, we couldn't get our money back, there wasn't another room to stay in, we weren't set up to camp anywhere, it was the middle of summer, everything was just, we gotta stay here. So we put all of our clothes and bags and everything into the back into the bathtub. Bed bugs can't crawl on slippery surfaces, flats. They can't. And in uh, in good porcelain bathtub or even a plastic one, they can't make it up. So that was the first thing we did. And then uh, I went and bought a trash can, a trash bag, and wrapped everything up in that trash bag. Tied it in a knot and I threw it in my shed and forgot about it for a year. <laughs> Technically, though, what I would do is that I would bring the, 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 the luggage and the bagging and, and things like that and put that into a very powerful dryer, a, kind of a large scale industrial dryer, um, and it will reach the lethal temperature and kill the, the, the bed bugs. Um, but that's, that, that's kind of the, the, the 
fairly vigilant approach. Of course, if you're here on a bicycle trip and you have a bike and you come back with a bike and you Say that the micro. Yeah, you, you, that, that that is a sacrifice. Um, I told I told the provost of uh, I mean I mean of the metro state when she emailed me from above a hotel in another part of the world that you're gonna have to sacrifice your luggage. So maybe there's a pre-planned part. Um, I think that, that that's a particularly interesting problem. What I would do if I had clothing that I was concerned about that couldn't handle a heat treatment is I would um, have a pattern of disrobing packaging in a bag, tying it off, leaving it there, bringing it the next day, and then just consider that uh, there's no way that a bed bug got in there, so I don't need to do anything but my normal, my normal washing cycle for that clothing. Um, but I, I, I was even skeptical for a while about bed bugs being transported in things like backpacks and other things until, until uh, my colleague ran into that problem. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. I had a uh, one of the chiggers over the summer. Oh and, my. And they, they are some of the worst itching bites I've ever experienced. And I was wondering, is there anything unusual you need about chigger bites? Don't want to put this slide This is such a strong, persistent itchy. Chiggers are really nasty. So we've shifted now into mites. And if you've ever experienced chiggers, um, these are all, they're never going to be part of your household. These are going to be part of the, the bush, the environment. And it's the chigger offspring that tunnel into you, essentially. And in so doing in your dermis, their saliva and other materials produced by them are a constant source of irritation. And so the, the classic tricks of the trade. So now we're talking about a constant seep of antigenic material, as well as other physical discomfort that is going to produce that sensation. Um, my best anti-chigger procedure, because I know I would run into them, is the classic, uh, you, you know, you can, the, the classic field biology where chiggers are going to get on you and migrate up until they can't. Kind of like bed bugs, they like tight spaces. And so waistband, did you have a lot of the waistband stuff? Or sock band, yeah. So you're gonna have you're gonna have a lot of these guys right where it gets tight. So the first thing is to avoid the get under the under the clothing under the skin. So tuck your pants, wear long pants, tuck them in to fairly tight socks. And uh, there are various cocktails and recipes. Some people are putting both repellent material and insecticidal material or acaricidal material. So uh, they're, they're, putting, they're putting both killing agents as well as repelling agents onto their lower legs so then they can kind of free that. The problem is, is for the, the people that actually are doing the type of field work where they're crawling around in 
that kind of environment. I, I've never had the chigger problem like that, but I always, uh, I have to watch out for the poison ivy deal. That's my thing. That's my antigen of torture. They actually burrow in and remain there, or do they drop off? I, as, as I recall with chiggers, they're there for a period of time. They're in there. They do, they, they're going to drop off because they're, they're seeking nutrient um, to, they're acquiring nutrients to live, live their lives. Um, I am very hazy on the nuts and bolts details of chiggers, but the best keyword to look up is the, well, they're in the genus Trombiculum. There's a word to describe this little board, this little dense mass of chiggers, and they call it a Trombiculum. Trombiculum. Yeah, anyway, T R O N D U L. A trombiculum, I think. So let's just kind of keep picking trombiculum, I think, about this. Yeah, yeah. That's my best. That's my best. Now, I'll tell you one thing, too, though, is that that is one that, for some reason, I'm a little bit off the hook with. In terms of my, my response, I've never been tortured like some of the biologists that I've been with. Like you. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Dale. Yeah. So where's that, you were describing the inch long mosquito, where's that from so I can avoid it? The very big mosquito is a really great mosquito. So the question was, where's the inch long mosquito from? Southeastern United States is home to this mosquito, but you can find it all the way up in, actually eastern, up into Ohio. Uh, that's why I first experienced it. If you wanted to look up this mosquito, besides typing in Dolly Ripper, you would type in um, Soropora with a P. P-S-O-R-O-P-H-O-R-A, Soropora. And then there's two genera of Dolly Nippers, there's two species. One of, them, one of them is called Ciliata, and that's the most widely distributed one. Ciliata with a P. And then the other one is, um, let's see, Howard, Howard I, named after Howard. And uh, these guys are big beastly mosquitoes. But, but um, there's two great things that you need to know about the golly nippers. The first one about the golly nippers is that they are not vectors of human disease. The second one is that their larvae are horrifying obligate predators that consume other mosquito larvae. Yeah. They are good guys. And the first time that I saw this thing, um, so, so I, I met, I, my, when I do the science, I find these little weird niches, and I don't try to be on the crest of any wave. And so a, a, a paper that I'm, that I'm working on describes predation in several different mosquitoes. And this particular mosquito has, so we're talking about the larva, right? Remember the, the design of the larva that we talked about? So it has a breathing siphon, it has an elongate worm-like abdomen, and then it has a, a, a puffed out thorax, and then it has this shovel-shaped head. And what this mosquito will do, unlike a lot of other mosquito larvae, it has well-developed mandibles that are kind of 
when they're when they're pulled out in the let's get the frame mode, they are kind of reminiscent of what you see on centipedes. They're very ominous. So this you know you normally don't see them though. Everything's tucked. And this mosquito will be in the water, and then the prey mosquito comes up, and I use a high-speed um, motion picture system to really slow the action down. We found out that the, mos the mosquito larva, the predator, the serophora, will squeeze the circular musculature, squeeze their abdomen, which is going to put a whole bunch of hydrostatic pressure. You could all do the same right now. I mean, about half of you could fart if I said fart. <laughs> the same thing. It's the same thing. Sorry. Is that an illegal word in the restaurant? <laughs> so, so, so they'll, they'll, they'll squeeze the musculature. You can see that, the, that this whole abdomen just shrinks. And then the head, like a jack-in-the-box, launches from the thorax. To extreme extension, to like the full length of the head, it doubles, and, and there's this skinny neck kind of holding it from totally shooting off the body of the larva. And at the time that it launches, the mandibles are exposed, and it has other appendages that form. The, you remember the brushes that the first larvae were feeding with? Well, in this mosquito, they're kind of crooks. They're they're like little ice. And they come out, so there's this huge basket of prickly hairs and these formidable, formidable mandibles, and this thing is launching at a biological speed that is probably towards the top. And it catches the prey larva, and then it just shoves it in like a wiener eating contest. <laughs> uh, I'm going, give me a minute. Yeah, yeah. So, So this is a very good kind of technical question about viral, arbovirus vectoring in mosquitoes. So the first thing is they have to get a blood meal that has virus. And the word, the key word to play with here is viremia, and that would be virus particles in blood, because that's what they're feeding on. And every animal with regards to the viruses that we're talking about will be attacked. So we now we're going to, we're talking about a mosquito that's going to get a virus, a viremic blood meal, but we got to go backwards now and talk about the, the host that has the virus already. That host is going to acquire it from the previous vector, and then the viremia, it will take time. That virus will just be trace infective amounts in beta cells, cycle, 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 cycle. And it's happening in this homogeneous kind of environment where pretty soon the virus is going to reach a level um, in the bird, in the mammal, where it is significant, it, it's enough virus to produce an infection in the next mosquito. 
The other part of the, the, the other part to think about too is that that host is fighting that virus wickedly with its immune response and will do one of two things. Die, like the corvids. My, my colleague, my ornithology colleague, I had to say corvids because one of a few bird words I know. Dr. Christian Corvo lives down the road. She's at Bridgerton. So, so uh, she, she's the ornithologist that we share a wall at Metro. But um, I got to say corvids, so now those things make her happy. So, uh, anyway, the, the crows and the jays, the crows and the jays were dying. And you remember the West Nile days where public health organizations were saying, let us know. Um, and uh, so a lot of birds do die, a lot of mammals do die, but, uh, and then those that don't, they're going to be a reservoir of hosts for just a window of time, because after that, the virus is gonna disappear. So the first part is that the mosquito that doesn't have the virus has to feed during this window of time when the host is vibrating enough to produce an infection. Then, that's the same thing that the mosquito has to survive, and the mosquito itself essentially has to become it wouldn't be viremic, but you mentioned some really key words, saliva. So the dissemination of virus in a good vector is total body. Uh, we didn't go too far into the anatomy of the insects, but they have an interesting system. They don't have a closed circulatory system like we do, where all of our blood is containing tubes. They have an open one, and it's not blood as you would suspect. It's Kind of, well, you've seen your windshields when you drive through a lot of insects. It's kind of yellowy, greeny, translucent, gooey stuff. Well, that's what they've got. And uh, this is going to disseminate through the cells of the body and reproduce and get into the saliva to the point where now we have a vector. Then that vector has to feed on a naive host and the whole thing cycles and starts again. So, um, and, and that raises extremely interesting questions about something like West Nile on, on the front range of Colorado. Um, your neighbors, um, probably about six miles that way is a place where I go to find mosquitoes in abundance anytime. And I'm always a golf shot away from multi-million dollar houses. <laughs> And that's where I make the, that's where I'm making a film that I'm working on. <laughs> and uh, those people, uh, Weaver's Green Belt, sorry. <laughs> it's a wonderful place. I love that place. But uh, um, it, it, it's it's an awesome place. Don't complain. It's really a, it, it, there hasn't been a case from that area, to my knowledge, a diagnosed case. The cases are up by Fort Collins, and if you go due east of Fort Collins to a bunch of that. Uh, agricultural land with cattails, that's where we're breeding birds of the vector mosquito. But the other thing we have to think about is the great, okay, ornithology, help, American flyway or whatever, it's one of the flyways. This front range, if you take a look at migratory bird patterns, and then the West Nile thing gets really interesting. One of my colleagues, the, uh, she's, she's the authority on, our, well, one of the authorities on arboviruses up at CDC, or to two, down another building perhaps, and she is, she's getting a little sick of the predictive questions with West Nile. So, Doc, what's it going to be like this year? And she stopped trying to be objective about it. She just looks at what happened in Texas the year before. <laughs> the, the data indicate that Texas is a pretty good indicator of what kind of year we're going to have. Very weird. Now think about those birds flying. And think about the other part that's left out of this conversation is that surviving hosts, whether rodents, mammals, 
Birds, if they survive to these viruses, as far as we know, lifelong immunity. So you can be a reservoir one time for these kinds of viruses. So then you think about the birds that live, you know, I've got a family of sparrows that I've known, we've named them, they produce two clutches every year in our house, like in the structure. Um, no. And then, I don't know, how long is my sparrow going to live? 13 years? Uh, and, uh, and so we have resident birds, and Denver is full of those, but then we have all these birds that are coming in. And, uh, and then that, that even changes to get more complicated. How many birds did you see on your birding trip this summer? How many species? 105 species of birds on the Metro State Summer Ornithology Field Class that she's been teaching for eight years, for 10 years, or 14 years, I don't know. What? Yeah. You guys might not know this, but Colorado is the sixth most birding state in the U.S. Yay! Yeah. Yeah. 499 species, if you didn't hear that, the sixth most birdiest state. Okay. I hope that wasn't overkill. Let me go here because you had a question and then over here. Yeah. Too many questions swirl around my head, but I have a question. What is the downside of the adult stage of the dolly nipper that causes it not to be used for mitigating at the larval stage for other mosquitoes? Well, that's a great question. So we're now talking about the potential of biocontrol for a mosquito that eats mosquitoes. And is there a downside for the golly nipper? The downside for the golly nipper is that it is harder to maintain and rear for purposes of mass dissemination. If you think of if you think of the way that um, um, it's, it's a tough mosquito to raise, and and all of these biocontrol strategies, uh, what we're getting at is a really cool thing. Some mosquitoes lay eggs that are quiescent and can survive as embryos within a coordinated egg for over a year. The Zika mosquito, also known as the yellow fever mosquito originally, and later the dengue and chikungunya mosquito, those mosquitoes, um, I, I don't have a certified rearing room at Metro, still a lot of red tape, but um, my colleague at the CDC has eggs of those mosquitoes ready to hatch on command. And she's got a lot more than she used to because they've had to amp up their studying of that particular mosquito. The mosquitoes that transmit to West Nile lay eggs in racks on the surface of the water dedicated to hatch. They will hatch within 48 hours and then the water cycle happens. They cannot survive for long periods of time. And that's the problem with our with our biocontrol mosquito is that we can't just we can't stockpile and disseminate, um, and they're difficult to rear. There is another mosquito that is a non-blood feeder that has a similar predatory larva. Nice. nice. <laughs> it's a good one. This one is this one is called Toxorynchides. It's actually a tiny bit bigger than the galley nipper, but it doesn't blood feed, and it's only a a nectar feeder. They have started, initiated, tried, deployed, including in New Orleans, um, biocontrol using this mosquito. So they're raising them, finding out ways to raise them. They're still at this. 
and then they're going to re they would release this mosquito, and then of course it's going to feed on nectar, and this is the mosquito that would control mosquito breeding in containers, which are the ones we're worried about. We're worried about mosquitoes that aren't in, in big puddles, or in cattail marshes, we are worried about those, but we're worried. Right now with Zika and dengue and chikungunya and those viruses, we're worried about mosquitoes breeding in tiny little cups of water, human, human stuff. Yeah, and this mosquito, this mosquito is eccentric because they're top predators. They will fly to these breeding sites, these little cups of water, and they, with the point of their abdomen, will launch eggs through the air into these cavities, and then a little terror, terroristic larvae will come out and consume the other mosquitoes. And uh, so you can actually, if you have one mosquito, one female mosquito doing the good work, that mosquito would actually take care of several of these microhabitats. But the other thing, though, that this brings our attention to is the blood meal is a ton of protein to make a ton of eggs. I mentioned 200. This mosquito only gets nectar, and it only gets trace amino acids, and it only produces, oh, see, thanks, good to see it. So, uh, so it produces trace numbers of eggs uh, compared to the blood-feeding species. So, so that's a really good question because it got us into a whole bunch of interesting diversity in the biology of mosquitoes. Okay, one more question. Oh, one more, yes. Uh, there's, one, there's one over here. So the question about Alaska mosquitoes feeding once. Yeah. So, so, so th this is another really cool question, um, and it's actually in our backyard as well. So we're talking now about the concept of generations. Voltanism's the word, and the mosquitoes that are extreme, living way, way up north and way, way up including mosquitoes that right now will bite you big time at 12,000 and up to maybe, well, I mean, at 10 to 12,000. These are mountain breeding. We have the mosquitoes of Alaska breeding above 12,000 feet in the state of Colorado. Remnants of our glacial event is amazing. And all these, most of these mosquitoes are univoltine. So that's all they'll do is come out slowly. They call them snow melt mosquitoes. They're slow moving worms in super frigid water melting from snow, and then they will grow into mosquitoes, they'll get their blood meal, they'll mate, they'll lay their eggs, and then the eggs will live under the snow, they're quiescent, like we just mentioned, for the whole year, and then hatch in the subsequent spring, univoltinism. So, I, I took uh, 18 Metro students to an alpine behavioral ecology course that I created in project number two, was to go up into the Gore Range and collect mosquitoes old school. The old school way for field biologists to collect mosquitoes is still not really old school, we all do it. It's called the biting pit. You have a tube around your neck that has a little screen so you don't swallow mosquitoes, it's an aspirator. And you basically suck everything off of your arms and your, your partner's arms and back and wherever else is exposed that you can. And uh, so I, I had no problems having all, you know, half of the class aspirating mosquitoes until they stop biting in the middle of the night. Because, because the, the, the vector 
you know, the highest vector for like West Nile, for instance, vector threat is pushing, you know, it's, it's eight, eight, five, maybe nine, something like that. So it's low. So uh, get them up high and uh, it's a good experience. So this is some really great stuff. You guys had great questions. So go to Alaska if you don't want to get an arbovirus. Um, but I think you could probably become food from something if you go wrong. So I really appreciate you guys' uh, time. And Scott, sorry, I didn't get to tell you the little bit that I know about resistance. But in, in closing, uh, Scott had asked a question about um, this one right here about um, the problem of resistance. Uh, and, and there's two, two types of resistance that we need to really worry about. And one of them is the resistance of vector species to the insecticides that we use. There are a variety of mechanisms. Some of them are more physical. Some of them are truly um, genetic, biochemical um, mechanisms. There are enzymes that detoxify insecticides. It's taken up more rapidly. You know, we're, we're selecting for super strains of mosquitoes that have the ability to to um, now let dehydrogenases if you're a biochemist, that's one family. And then uh, the other thing is, and this is perhaps more alarming, is uh, that uh, we have long-standing emergence in parasites transmitted by mosquitoes, most namely malaria, the resistance to our anti-malarials. We use anti-malarials for two things, prophylaxis, if you've ever gone to a tropical malarious area, you might have been advised to take anti-malarials before you go. If you didn't do that, or if you got a strain that turns out to be resistance to the one that you got, then they throw other things at you and they call that chemotherapy. Uh, so um, so um, um, that we're running into, we're running in on all fronts to those three, those three things. And uh, the mosquito, uh, the mosquito relationship to us in the modern world is only getting more complicated. But you should, you should all remember this one thing, you know, pick something that we're all scared of. I mean, I, I almost lost my brother to West Nile, but if, if he would have died, even his name to the total for the whole epidemic is less than 2,000 deaths in our country. It, it's amazing. Um, West Nile is destructive, but take a look at the other things that kill us. Um, you know, there are more deaths to ulcers during that time period. Um, well, not that that's an infectious thing, but uh, you know, I don't know. It's a crazy, it's a crazy world, isn't it? But uh, um, I'm not telling you guys to go love a mosquito. I'm not telling you to go out and get bitten by mosquitoes now. Um, this is the time of night when the West Nile vectors are going to start coming out. And uh, we haven't had our first Colorado case, but I predict it in the next few weeks. And then it'll be a little bit of a firestorm, but it'll be another low year, at least my prediction, from the Texas data. <laughs> so anyway, I really appreciate you guys doing a great audience.
For a wildlife biologist who works up on the Thunder Basin National Grassland, she's not just a scientist, but also an amazing photographer. So you should be here on the 9th of August. See you next week.